Welcome to Sport Faith Life with Brian Bolt and Chad Carlson, two guys who came together with one common purpose, to think deeply about sport and faith. They are sports scholars, they're coaches, and they're competitive athletes, or at least they were. And together, they've created Sport Faith Life, a conversation that meets at the intersection of sport and faith. Welcome to the Sport Faith Life Podcast. We are continuing along our mini-series on the fruits of the Spirit and the deadly sins. Today, we are discussing the final deadly sin. And this is one that we've put off on purpose, put it last on purpose. I don't know if there's a pecking order of the deadly sins. I mean, the, the fruits of the Spirit are listed in a particular order. I think that means something. We rearrange that order a little bit, but with the deadly sins, we put this one last because we thought it might be it might be the most interesting one. This is a sin that uh, C.S. Lewis refers to as the utmost evil, the essential vice, the utmost evil. So we saved it for last. I think that makes sense that we did that, right? We're talking about, of course, the, the sin of pride. This is a this is potentially a very deep topic to explore because of the many instantiations of the word pride. We think of pride. There are a lot of things that we're proud of, that we have pride for. We have national pride. We have civic pride. We have pride in our school. These all seem to be good things. And of course, we're taught, especially as kids, that we want to do work that we're proud of. And we want to be proud of things because being proud is good. So having some amount of pride is a good thing. And that's probably what makes this such an interesting deadly sin to discuss. So, Brian, when we introduce the sin of pride, and, and specifically in sport where it would seemingly be rampant, what comes to your mind first? Yeah, I think you set it up well when you said that there's a certain complexity here that we maybe have to tease out before we start applying pride to different behaviors in sport or different thought processes in sport. Um, I think it's worthwhile to know that some lists of deadly sins don't actually include pride. They sort of replace it with vainglory. Hmm. And those two are not exactly the same. Vainglory, I think we need to talk about today as well. And you can sort of separate that from pride a little bit because it has sort of a showy element. The idea that I want to show off or look really good to other people. And so much of that is tied to sport. You also referred to C.S. Lewis. You know, he actually talked about competition being very, he didn't uh, name it directly, but he talked about pride being essentially wanting, not just wanting something, but wanting more of it than the next person, wanting to be better than the next person. And when you start thinking about competition, uh, some might use that very directly as a as a definition of competition. You need to be better than the other person. And you started to also just talk about, look, we've got this really weird word where we uh, feel definitely that there is two types of pride at least. One of them is a good pride, one that is sort of rooted in a feeling of satisfaction, of accomplishment. And maybe a really deep satisfaction of achievement. And we also have this other one that maybe takes it too far. It's like, are we too satisfied? And that's one of these weird things. Like, at what point does my pride tip? 
you know, the Bible says, uh, treat others as, as yourself. And so you have to feel okay about yourself to treat others that way. I mean, if you feel lousy about yourself, then you're going to treat others lousy. Uh, so we've got this, this, uh, idea that somehow a good self-esteem, a good self-concept is kind of essential to being able to treat others well. And so thinking about yourself in a positive way seems like we're starting to toy with pride, uh, but maybe we're not. So I, I wanted to um, sort of separate those different things. I guess, I guess one more word that gets thrown in is excellence, right? And so this pursuit of excellence is it shows up in every mission statement, right? It shows up in every um, sport, every school. Everyone wants to pursue excellence. And yet pride is sort of connected to this uh, seeking of excellence um, and maybe over-excellence or over-seeking of excellence. A, a, a haughty spirit uh, goes before a fall, right? A pride we often say goes before the fall. And so I guess we're, we're going to have to tease out what's good pride and what's bad pride in sport. There's definitely many instantiations of it. And of course, like when we're talking about self-concept um, and so many of the deadly sins, really, the idea is that, um, you know, having, having an amount of something might be okay, but then having the excess is really where the problem comes in. And that's definitely seems to be the case with pride. When we talk about the varieties of pride, you know, you, you talk about competition, we talk about excellence, that's that's wonderful. In fact, excellence is often used by sport philosophers, and, and Brian and I share this, this viewpoint that this is used to kind of justify competition, that we're not actually seeking to do better than somebody else, we're seeking to be as excellent as possible. And a win, of course, striving to win, which is also um, necessary within the enterprise of sport, it's, it's necessary to try to win. Um, but if, if the focus is on winning because winning would be exemplary of someone doing well and showing excellence, you know, that's the way that we justify it as opposed to stepping into competition just because we want to show betterment uh, than, than others. So there's, there's that route, right, to go down, um, down that road. I think that's really, that's really important. Maybe, maybe we should be starting there that when we think about what we do well, or what we might be proud of within our accomplishments in sport, it seems like beating others is one thing. So that might be sort of a head-to-head -head competition. We can be proud that we showed excellence regardless of how we, uh, of how we finished related to another. So I might, I might lose, but still, still be very proud that I got a personal best, personal record, or I showed a great deal of skill. Um, <clears throat> we can be, be, be proud of, of improvement. That is, there might be something that we did better than we've done in the past that's worthy of our pride, our, our own self-pride, that would be uh, irrespective of what our competitor or competitors are doing. And then the third thing I would say is we can be, we can be proud of, of achieving certain things in the world of sports. So an, an, an achievement that also could be irrespective of potential opponents. Usually it is with respect to opponents, but it could be out, outside of that, that we achieved um, you know, a 1000 point mark for the season or achieve 10,000 yards gained or, you know, whatever else it might be. There's, there are achievements that we can be proud of. So all these things that are built into sport that help to motivate us towards, you know, uh, good performances also probably lead us down that road towards uh, what might be a sin of, of pride. Yeah. And I think you started to 
talk about maybe we could we could find a way to excellence without an opponent or without comparison. And yet I wonder in sport if that's possible. I, I think you can compare across time and, and certainly those things that that um, sort of are lent to records could potentially be compared outside of the moment in which you perform your excellent uh, achievement. But when, you know, if I think of a wrestling match between myself and a 10 year old, I'm going to win, but there's no fairness to that contest. And therefore the, the win or the comparison itself doesn't matter. And so we start thinking about what lets me know that I've achieved something. And part of that is the quality of the comparison. In other words, do we have something, do we have a comparison point that shows a level of fairness or equality? And then are you able to rise above in that space? Particularly, we think of underdogs. When somebody is picked to lose and then they're able to win, we're able to sort of assess that achievement. The big question, I guess, at this point is, um, you know, we're going to feel a deep satisfaction in that sort of process uh, if we're able to accomplish something that we weren't expected to accomplish. And yet at the same time, uh, there's this need to compare uh, and assess my own value at that point, uh, where it could easily lead to a belittling of the other person, maybe even a, um, a contempt for another person. And that would certainly be a sign that uh, some maybe positive pride has, has seeped into something negative, uh, a um, a pride that is really built on an unnatural self-worth. If pride is, at least in part, you know, caring too much about about the optics, about what other people are thinking of us, or or thinking too much about our own abilities and our own successes, and, and potentially our own our own failures as well. If that's a part of it, then it seems like like you're onto something here for sure. And so that that's a part of all of this, right? Is how, how, how we're thinking about what we've done in comparison to others. And so if we're thinking about what we've done as being superior to others, that certainly falls prey to maybe one characteristic of pride, which would be arrogance. Uh, where where we're, we're thinking about ourselves as being superior to others, I think there's types of pride that occur that that don't require superior or thinking that you're superior to others. But it seems like that that happens often in the world of sport because of the nature of competition, because of the the head to head. And we can even separate things. But but you're absolutely right too that even if we talk about our own accomplishments, that is what we've achieved or the ways in which we've approved improved, we're still doing so within the context of other performances or the performances of others. And so there's a natural comparison there that, that, that leads, that leads us down a path towards the problems of pride. Yeah. And I think as we start to see where it might show up in sport, we all know of moments where we, we, we see pride. Right, we see somebody acting in a way that uh, it rises above their own teammates. You know, sometimes uh, we'll see it on, say, a basketball floor. You play a lot of basketball, and there's a uh, pretty obvious uh, demonstration 
of one person sort of putting himself or herself above everybody else and acting in such a way, maybe not passing the ball, maybe not trying hard on defense, um, where you get the sense that what's leading this is how they're being viewed by other people, but also how they're viewing other people. Um, are you, are you seeing your teammates as a help or are you seeing them as a hindrance? And I'm wondering if in sport, I mean, we've said this before too, with, with, uh, deadly sins like envy, we are setting people up. Uh, we're bringing them really close to the fire pit of pride. Uh, and we're a- asking them to not have it right to, to avoid it. And I start thinking of what, coaches or leaders of sport tend to do to try to, uh, I guess, head off or uh, limit how pride might seep into a team environment. So coaches might talk about, um, you know, being humble about your own play, even if you're really good. Uh, So it almost feels like a mental gymnastic. If you're the best player on the team, the most important thing is that you really value your teammates. and, and so in some ways, I wonder if this sort of ties to words that, that, that are hard to understand when, when Jesus talks about, you know, doing good works. He says, you know, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And in some ways, it's easy to have very, it's very easy to have spiritual pride, to uh, think that, you know, your, your contributions, your, uh, the, things, the good things that you do, are are really worth something, and you could you could easily sort of uh, turn that into something that you're so proud of that it turns into an arrogance. Jesus even talks about that when he talks about you know praying in public and trying to sort of demonstrate how good you are at praying in public or doing your good works or fasting in 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 such a way that everybody notices. Right, that can be a pride that Jesus is trying to call out. He's saying that that's not. Uh, what we're looking for. And yet all those things, you know, doing good works, helping other people, fasting, those are all, those are all good actions. But if done with the wrong heart, they turn into a deadly sin or they turn into pride. There's probably no better, no better place to understand uh, spiritual pride than if you have sort of, um, uh, you know, competitive or very similarly, similarly situated, um, you know, denominations within the Christian church. And so Brian and I are, are speaking to you from rival college campuses that I think oftentimes have, have fallen prey to that, to that sin where we think we're, we're, you know, better on a spiritual level than, than the other school, you know, we're so close, but that's one way that we compare ourselves a lot, I think. So I appreciate you, you mentioning that, that, that that's very capable. And certainly Jesus talked about that spiritual pride. Some of it had to do in, in his teachings with, um, with legalism, right? And so he was he was speaking to to people within a culture that at least you know the Jews that were were bound by particular traditions and laws, and you your self worth was based on how well you followed the laws. And so thinking about the, the rich young ruler, where Jesus says, "Yes, you, you've kept all you know agrees with me. Okay, you've kept all of these these rules since you were a kid, um, but your heart's not not there, right?" So there was there's a pride in in one's obedience, I suppose, that we see Jesus sort of pushing back against in some of his teachings in, in the Bible. And I just wonder about the mental gymnastics of all that, that you mentioned, Brian, too, in sport, that, you know, what, what's healthy and what's not healthy from a pride and sin perspective, because 
when I'm confronted with a major challenge in the world of sport, I'm trying to rely on what I've done in the past to give me confidence to be able to do well moving forward. And so I'm saying I can do this challenge because I've done something similar in the past and I've done well. And if I'm talking myself up like that, I probably have a better chance at success. Yeah, you've really identified something on certainly in the sports psychology literature, the idea of self-confidence, right? And people talk about it as as positive self-talk. In other words, telling yourself, hey, I'm good at this. I can handle this. I know what I'm doing. Uh, I've been here before. I have accomplishments to build on. And we even talk about fake it until you make it. So even mm-hmm. if you don't have those things, we're, we're actually encouraged to think that about ourselves so that we can step up or perform in the circumstance. And so you're identifying there this really interesting psychological technique, this movement that all coaches and athletes have certainly experienced. And it it is a little bit of, uh, in some ways, self-delusion or self-pep talk <laughs> to try to get you into a space. And, and that could that could clearly be in the context of a game. And we think, okay, that's part of the game. That's part of the the role I'm taking on. Uh, yet at the same time, it just feels a little unseemly, doesn't it? When we uh, start speaking confidence into our own actions in such a way that uh, just feels like we're piling on. We're adding lots of affirmations to ourselves or somebody else is adding affirmations to ourselves that just doesn't fit with how we want to see ourselves as Christians. And so it's just, it's a really interesting crossover, I think, when we think about how to build up a performer to get ready to perform in their in their peak way. Right. And that's that's the idea, right? Building up. So I can I can theorize my way into making sense of this. That is, if I have a confidence deficit. I'm I'm up a, up against a challenge and I am not confident because it's an it's an exceptionally large challenge or it's in front of an exceptionally large number of people or whatever else in the world of sport. I'm using this um, you know this this positive self talk in order to relieve myself of the confidence deficit. So I'm trying to build myself up, like you said, you're, we're building ourselves up to be uh, sort of who we are, as opposed to you know just you know, failing in, in our, our skillful behavior because of the ways in which there's more pressure or more people watching or, you know, the stakes are higher. And so I think there's something there where I could say, you know what, that doesn't seem like pride to me if we're trying to build ourselves back up to where we are when we're faced with a deficit. But then if we're, if we're building ourselves up beyond sort of where we normally are or beyond our normal selves, then I could see it getting into the world of conceit. The idea that uh, we have an exaggerated com- opinion of ourselves, or our virtues, our accomplishments, whatever else, and so then we're acting conceited, and that would seem like it fits within the realm of of pride. Yeah, and that might be a really helpful way to think about it. It's sort of the before and after. If you're getting yourself into a space that you need to perform, and you're thinking about what mental energy and uh, amount of focus will I need, and and how will I uh, sort of pour energy, pour more gasoline into my tank in terms of confidence? How will I do that in preparation for an activity that may be very different than sort of coming out of an activity and having sort of this conceit or potential contempt for or uh, inflated view of oneself uh, because things went really well? And so that might be a helpful way for us to think about how pride can go uh, awry 
um, in our minds and in our actions. And I wonder if I could just then open up another question because you talked about just sort of the visibility of that. And when we talk about performance in sport, people often see it. I mean, depending on what sport it is, your teammates see it, your opponents see it, coaches see the way that you perform and potentially spectators, fans see things and you tend to get feedback. So you're often, particularly if you're, you perform well, you're getting praise. And we see over and over again, particularly professional athletes that are uh, on in, in some form of media, we see people attempting to deal with praise. And I guess I really want to just ask you how you respond to the spiritual attempts to deal with phrase, uh, praise, um, and we might call it sort of deflecting. So people will say, hey, what a great catch. And people will say, yeah, I give, I give God the glory on that. Or what a great win. Yes, uh, God gave, uh, we give God the glory on that. Or some phrase that's similar to that, which is, which is an attempt in that way to say, you know what, I'm really grateful uh, I have um, I have these God-given skills, and and maybe even in the moment, you know, I I was I was blessed in a particular way. I, I wonder what what kind of reaction do you have when you see professional athletes use that platform to deflect uh, what is praise and and send it another direction? Short answer: I get squirmish, but. Maybe that's just the the realities of the moment and just sort of my own temperament towards what I'm viewing. But I would say longer and better answer, and, and here what, what I'm going to do here is, is uh, talk about uh, bending the light by bending the light, which is one of, the, one of the, the really fun and insightful things that I've heard you say when talking to audiences, Brian, is, is that it's really important for people in positions of leadership to bend the light, to sort of... Uh, when the praise comes to the leader to deflect that praise and send it to others. And there's probably a sense in which that's not fully authentic, but you used another phrase earlier in this, in this episode already uh, that I think is important here. That is fake it till you make it. I think there's something about doing things like something about our behaviors related to spiritual virtues and vices that help us to become a particular way if we do those things over and over again. And so the practice of, when one is being praised, uh, bending the light back towards others who helped or were in support or sending all the glory to God. I know that's a cliched phrase, A-G-D- A-G-T-G, all glory to God. Nevertheless, when we do that over and over again, that's certainly a way of, of building building some community. I think building trust in those closest with us that, they, that, that we recognize that it wasn't all us, that our accomplishments weren't just as a result of our magnificent abilities or our own virtues or, you know, our own accomplishments. So I think there's something there that's worth exploring uh, that even if it isn't authentic bending of the light back towards others, I think it's, it, it matters. I, um, I remember about 20 years ago being in, being in a, a church at one point in time and the pastor who had really grown the ministry and had done amazing, amazing things was, was giving the last sermon at the end of it. The congregation stood up and gave just this long, rousing ovation for that person. And that person had done wonderful work. There was no doubt about that. And I'll never forget the response that that person gave was simply just to point up to the sky. And it was very different from, um, you know, a football player pointing up to the sky when they make a first down or a basketball player when they hit a three-pointer. This was just like a long, like effusive point. Like it wasn't me, it was God. And it was clear that that person had 
had, whether they actually thought that or not, that person was just so comfortable deflecting the praise up to God and to others that it, it felt very authentic. And, and that always sat with me as, you know, this person's receiving as much praise as any person in the church would ever, would ever receive at one point in time. And, and that deflection was so automatic that it felt very, very uh, like a really appropriate response to praise. Yeah, I love that. I, I think uh, I, like you, would, when I see athletes point to the sky or give a post-game interview and, it, you know, it's sort of the predictable, cliche-ish kinds of, you know, attempts to, to honor God, uh, I get squeamish too. But I think that's kind of particular to us, Chad, uh, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. When I ask other people, they're not as, as um, concerned about that. And maybe it's because we study sport, right? right. That's right. And, and we have maybe a, a high bar for authenticity and you, you are calling that appropriately into question. Maybe it's our own pride hmm. that makes us respond that way. Yeah. That, uh, you know, we have this, this thought that, you know, there's, there's probably some mixed, uh, motives in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what you're pointing out is that, yes, of course, we're all fallen creatures and everything we do probably has a good set of mixed motives. You know, we do something good, but we also like the feeling that it gives us that we've done something good. And we're not all that concerned if, uh, you know, somebody else notice it and uh, gives us praise for it. So w- I think we always have mixed motives. And the idea of practices, things like that, you know, where you, you sort of practice being uh, better at something. Uh, is is really uh, a well-worn path right now when we think about how uh, pract- how uh, habits are formed, right? And so if we can do something over and over again, um, out of an, an authentic attempt to uh, follow Jesus and be a good disciple, um, even when our motives aren't perfect, they can they can get better and we can move in that direction. I think of, you know, uh, on a team, when I'm coaching a team right now, what I often try to say to my players is, you know, all the, the learning is not one direction. So, so for instance, you know, you have better players and worse players, but I say, you know, you might learn something from somebody that is not as, as accomplished as you. You have to really humble yourself to listen, to be able to uh, sort of develop an ear for learning and a humility for learning. And so those are some of the things that we, we can do just sort of practically to help us um, go past the initial uh, hierarchy that we might find in sport and, and learn how to sort of practice gratitude and humility. And I think that's good for teams. That's good for individual players. Um, and I think what you talked about in terms of bending the light is a great practice. You know, there's another practice that I, I caught from uh, from a coach at one point in time, a coach that said, I remember him giving a talk at a camp and and I was I was there listening and he said, I want everybody here to, and this is really interesting related to virtues. He said, I want, I want you to learn how to steal. He said, some of the best hmm. players, some of the best athletes, the best coaches are, are pros at stealing. They're, they're stealing things from others. And it's the idea that that nobody can do it on their own. You got to be learning things from other people. So when you said the humility to learn and listen, I think that's really important too. There's something about that, that I have something to learn from others that I'm around. And 
and and that can be a you know a, a pride dampening thought to have. But it's really important, of course, in the world of sport where so much is passed along from one person to the next, and you know you learn how to get better by training with a different person. Or, you know, there's this great story of, of LeBron James, you know, not really taking the next step and being an NBA superstar until he spent time training with Kobe Bryant in the lead up to an Olympics that Kobe just trained so much harder. And so LeBron had to realize, so he had to sort of steal these practices from Kobe in order to be as good as he could be. And, and really him acknowledging that is, is, is a source of, um, is him ex- displaying the fact that there's He's not, you know, full of pride that there's, there's these ideas that he's gotten from others. So that has always resonated with me. And it's especially, I think, ironic because the idea of stealing would be sort of anti-virtuous. And yet (laughs) when we steal ideas, we steal, you know, thoughts and practices from others. That can be a really good thing for us. And the acknowledgement that that's what we're doing, in fact, is uh, helps us to keep our pride in check. Yeah, I think I'm going to take that as um, a good way to sum up this conversation when we think about what is anti-pride, to me, when I'm when I'm working with other people, when I'm you know in my role, I hire people, and what I'm often looking for is a teachable spirit, right? You're hoping someone uh, can present in such a way that they don't know it all, and uh, we need to model that when we're working with uh, players, teammate teams. Uh, colleagues, those sorts of things. We're modeling a teachable spirit, and we want to look for that. And we, um, I think that that will help us all as we try to avoid and steer clear of this deadly sin of pride. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Sport Faith Life, and we can't wait to talk to you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Sport Faith Life podcast conversation at the intersection of sport and faith. Read the corresponding blog post and learn more about us at sportfaithlife.com. Listen to more of our podcasts on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media to stay up to date with everything sport, faith, life. Mm-hmm.